Congratulations to one of my favorite brands, Little Helper Diapers, for being voted best cloth diaper brand of 2023. I recently came across Little Helpers when Uncle Mo, one of the founders and mad scientists behind the company, stitched one of my sextile videos. He jokingly took responsibility for saving our sexy time, and I was hooked. Little Helpers produces sustainable and eco-friendly products such as cloth diapers, reusable wipes, menstrual pads, and much more. But I've got to say, my favorite is the Lifesaver Mat. A soft and smooth waterproof PUL on one side and an absorbent stain-resistant charcoal fleece on the other, this mat will meet all your needs. Available in two sizes, use it for potty training, pet training, and even sexy time. And wait until you see the variety of original prints unique to Little Helpers. With names like Hipster Farm and Badass Mermaids, there's something for everyone. I mean, unicorns drinking wine? Take my money. Take it all. On a personal level, Uncle Mo is one of the most caring human beings I've come across. Little Helper has a God-forbid guarantee, where if something unexpected were to happen during your pregnancy or birthing, they will refund your entire purchase. Following my recent online tribulation, Uncle Mo has personally contacted me to make sure I was doing all right. Truly, I cannot say enough good things about this brand. For 10% off, head to lilhelperusa.com slash discount slash living Richardson. I'm the girl who talks a lot. I'm the girl who always has her head in the clouds. I'm the girl who tries to find the humor in every situation. I'm the girl who's too much. Hi, I'm Sam Richardson, and this is my podcast, Living Richardson. Hey, hey, glory holes. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I have launched a website. By doing so, this makes all of my content and goodies accessible from one platform. If you so desire to check it out, please visit livingrichardson.org. Also, don't forget to mark your calendars for a very exciting announcement coming November 21st. With spooky season coming to an end, I wanted to do an episode geared towards my personal favorite genre, true crime. I search through cases looking for something that relates to my content or what I'm known for. When I stumbled upon this story, or stories, since there are multiple cases involved here all believed to be connected, I knew I needn't look further. Welcome to episode 12, The Great Basin Killer. The Great Basin is a vast, arid bowl sprawling between the Rockies and the Sahara Nevada, getting its name from an odd geographical trait. Its few rivers find no outlet to the sea. Instead, they dribble into the basin's low spots and evaporate. Water isn't the only thing that collects in the empty span of the Great Basin. Since 1983, killers have found the region's lonely highway interchanges the perfect dumping grounds for bodies. In the Great Basin states of Wyoming, Nevada, Utah, and Idaho, authorities are investigating the deaths of nine women whose bodies turned up near highways that crossed the empty scrubland. The women were strangled, shot, and stabbed. Many were stripped nude, 
aggressively sexually abused, and assaulted beyond what would be necessary to kill them. Their bodies were found on hilltops, in snowbanks, rivers, or desolate areas of desert. Most of the deaths remained unsolved. I tried to find more information on each of the victims, but there doesn't seem to be a lot out there. I did, however, find something heartbreakingly beautiful. In the summer of 2021, the Wilbur D. May Museum in Reno, Nevada, presented a new art exhibit on the Great Basin murders that sought to memorialize the victims and bring attention to the cold cases, according to thisisreno.com. This article states that Lily Martina Lee created original weavings using data from each case, including height, weight, and age estimates, as well as the date and GPS coordinates of when and where each of the unidentified victims were located. The weavings are paired with digital photography by Carrie Quinney. The images document the woven shrouds at the sites where each victim was found. These images position the shrouds as bodies, all against the backdrop of the ever-foreboding, mysterious, and beautiful Western landscape. You can view this body of work at lilymartinalee.com. It is somberly stunning. I encourage you to check it out. Each photo has a short caption describing the woman it represents. This was the only information on the Great Basin victims I could really find. I think each woman deserves to be remembered, so I'm going to read you their excerpts from Lily Martina Lee's piece. On July 14, 1972, ranchers found the new decomposing body of Star Valley Jane Doe in Elko County in the Star Valley area off Dennis Flats Road. The area is about eight miles south of I-80. The victim's body had been posed in a cross-like manner. On October 2, 1972, a local hunter found the remains of Devil's Gate Jane Doe in a shallow ditch in Elko County. The torso was not recovered. Investigators believe she died between one to three months before being found. On July 16, 1974, a tourist couple discovered the charred remains of Thousand Springs Jane Doe in Elko County, Nevada, about 200 feet off Highway 93, where a motel and service station had previously been before it burned down. On March 1, 1981, a motorist who had stopped along Jacks Valley Road outside of Genoa, Nevada, to photograph the landscape, discovered the body of Cora Carrillo down a 17-foot steep embankment. She was wearing blue jeans, a brown sweater, cowboy boots, and a gold chain necklace. She had been strangled with an article of clothing. She was a cocktail waitress in Carson City, Nevada at the time. Her case remains unsolved. On April 3, 1991, a landscaper found the partially clad body of a woman on an isolated road on the outskirts of St. George, Utah. She was identified by fingerprints as Ermelinda Garza, who lived in Las Vegas at the time. Her case remains unsolved. On March 1, 1992, a truck driver discovered the body of Bitter Creek Betty at the bottom of a slope on an I-80 turnout known as Bitter Creek in Sweetwater County, Wyoming. On April 13, 1992, I-90 Jane Doe was discovered in a ditch along I-90 near Sheridan, Wyoming, about five miles south of the Montana-Wyoming border. She was about 10 weeks pregnant at the time of her death. 
In May 2020, Clark Perry Baldwin, a truck driver from Iowa, was arrested for the deaths of I-90 Jane Doe and Better Creek Betty based on DNA evidence found on both victims. On November 16, 1993, a geologist on his way back to California found the body of Shafter Jane Doe. Her body was nude in a cross-like position off I-80 in Elko County near the Utah border. Testing revealed that the victim spent the last seven months of her life in Afton, Wyoming. On October 30, 1996, two hunters from Utah discovered partially mummified human remains at the base of a rock outcropping about five miles south of West Wendover, Nevada, near US-93 Alternate. They were later identified as Tina Sherry Schnell, a.k.a. Cindy Marie Souza, who was 33 at the time. On August 15, 1997, a long-haul trucker's wife who was riding shotgun spotted the nude body of Tanya Teske along the southbound on ramp of Highway 20 in Yukon, Idaho. She was originally from Shoshone, Wyoming. She was last seen leaving the Cinnamon Lodge near Big Sky, Montana. Her case remains unsolved. Besides a few Reddit threads, that's truly all I could find when searching the internet for these women. That's gut-wrenching to me. Until my true crime quest this past week, I've never heard of the Great Basin murders, and now I think I slightly might be obsessed. I want to dig deeper and find out who these women were and figure out what the heck happened to them. That would be some headline. The Basin Lady Solves the Great Basin Murders. Even though there isn't much information on these victims, there are, however, two high-profile cases that are suspected to be related to the Great Basin Murders. According to Unsolved Mysteries, 18-year-old Lisa Marie Kimmel worked as a manager of a fast-food restaurant in Denver, Colorado. Sometime after 4.30 p.m. on Friday, March 25, 1988, she left to go visit her boyfriend, Ed Roach in Cody, Wyoming. After that, she planned to go to Billings, Montana to visit her parents. When she left, she was driving her black 1988 Honda CRX with a personalized Lil Miss license plate. She planned to travel to Casper, Wyoming on Interstate 25. From there, she planned to take a two-lane road to Cody. Weather conditions were good, so Lisa should have made it to Ed's house in about eight hours, arriving late Friday night. However, she never did. So the next morning, he called several highway patrols. Two days later, the Wyoming Highway Patrol told him that she was stopped briefly for speeding 60 miles south of Casper at around 9 p.m. on Friday night. The stop occurred about four hours after she left home. She appeared to be right on schedule. A signature on the police citation and a voice recording proved that the woman stopped was her. This was the last confirmed sighting of Lisa Marie Kimmel. On April 2nd, one week after Lisa disappeared, Greg Bradford, a mechanic who was spending his Saturday fishing on the North Powell River, brought the search for Lisa Marie to a sad end. When I stepped off the side of the bank, I looked over my shoulder and I saw a lady in the water. And then I remember when we were driving up from Cheyenne, they said this young girl was missing from Montana. So I looked again and said, oh my God, it must be her. 
police searched the area where Lisa's body was discovered. On an old highway bridge, one quarter of a mile away, they found blood that was the same type as Lisa's. Because the bridge is so inaccessible and so seldom used, police concluded that the murderer probably lived in the area. Based on the eyewitness accounts of unexplained activity on the bridge, they estimated that Lisa was murdered early Saturday morning, roughly five hours after she was stopped for speeding. Strangely, during the next several days, hundreds of sightings were reported of Lisa and her car throughout the northwestern United States and Canada. Several of the witnesses reported seeing her with an unidentified man. Composites were made of at least 17 men. However, none of them seemed to resemble one another closely enough to justify issuing a wanted poster. These sightings occurred after the time she was believed to have been murdered. The most reliable sightings came on March 26th and 27th. One sighting was in Casper, just a 20-minute drive from where Lisa's body was found, and the other two were in Buffalo, about two hours away. Strangely, she did not appear to be signaling for help during any of these sightings. The Casper sighting occurred at around 1.45 p.m. on March 27th. A woman was driving downtown when she noticed the Montana Lil Miss license plate on a car. She remembered this because her roommate owned a puppy with the same name. She saw that the driver had blonde hair and she was wearing a yellow sweater. 22 hours later, Donna Kirkpatrick, the county sheriff's wife in Buffalo, reported that she had seen Lisa wearing a pink sweater. She recalled that around 12 p.m. on March 26, Lisa pulled in front of her driving her car. She noticed that the car had a Montana license plate with Lil Miss on it. Curiously, her parents do not believe that she owned either a pink or a yellow sweater. Furthermore, the patrolman who stopped her for speeding recalled that she was wearing a black and white sweater. Two hours after Donna saw Lisa, another eyewitness also saw her in Buffalo. This time, a mysterious man was with her. The witness, a cashier at a service station, saw her pull up in her car. He noticed the Montana Lil Miss license plate on the front. He saw two people inside, Lisa and the unidentified man. When he looked again a few minutes later, it was gone. Lisa was last seen at 9 p.m. on Friday night, and she was reported missing by 9 a.m. Saturday morning. Yet she was reportedly seen twice later that day and once on Sunday. If Lisa was alive, why hadn't she showed up at her boyfriend's or her parents' house? And if she had been killed early Saturday morning, as police suspect, who was driving the car with Lisa's distinctive license plates? All those mysteries have yet to be answered. In the summer of 2002, investigators researching cold cases came across Lisa's rape kit, and a DNA profile was developed from the evidence. The CODIS database matched the DNA to Dale Wayne Eaton, a 57-year-old from Wyoming, who was then serving time in federal prison in Colorado on an unrelated weapons charge. He had previously been convicted of kidnapping a family at gunpoint in 1997. In an area less than a three-hour drive from Lander, Shannon Breeden, her husband Scott, and their five-month-old baby Cody were traveling when their van broke down at a pullout along Interstate 80. Eaton stopped his green 85 Dodge van and offered them assistance and asked Shannon to drive. Eaton then pulled a rifle from the back of the van, kidnapped the family at gunpoint, and directed them south of the highway into the desert. 
Shannon accelerated and turned into a tight circle instead, which enabled Scott to jump out of the van with the baby and Shannon to get out on the other side. Scott grabbed Eaton and hit him over the head with a rifle butt. After a struggle, Eaton was stabbed with his own knife and left while the family drove away at speed. Eaton was also charged with involuntary manslaughter and the death of his cellmate, Clay Palmer, but was acquitted. Eaton's next-door neighbors reported to investigators that they had seen him digging a large hole on his property in Wyoming, approximately 75 miles from Casper. The site was excavated in the summer of 2002, and Lisa's Honda CRX was unearthed, still bearing her distinctive Lil Miss license plate. It was determined that Eaton held Lisa there for six days. Inside his trailer, authorities also found women's clothing and purses and newspaper reports about other murdered women. A fellow inmate testified Eaton confessed to him that Lisa offered to give Eaton a ride, and Eaton accepted. He made sexual advances during the ride, which Lisa did not appreciate, so she pulled over to let him out of the car. The situation then escalated to kidnapping, rape, and murder. Eaton was charged with eight crimes connected to Lisa's case, including first-degree premeditated murder, aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, first-degree sexual assault, and second-degree sexual assault. In 2004, he was sentenced to the death penalty. Law enforcement and many followers of this case believe Dale Wayne Eaton exhibits some of the telltale signs of being a serial killer and that he is the Great Basin Killer. Most of the victims were young women who initially disappeared, only to be later found murdered. So it is theorized that Lisa Marie Kimmel was another victim of the Great Basin murders. So it is theorized that Lisa Marie Kimmel was another victim of the Great Basin Killer. The second highly publicized case many speculate to be connected to this string of murders is the mysterious disappearance of Amy Rowe Bechtel. According to Strange Outdoors, on July 24, 1997, 24-year-old Amy Rowe Bechtel went for a run and never came back. On the morning of July 24, Amy told her husband Steve She was planning on doing several errands in town after teaching a children's weightlifting class at the Wind River Fitness Center. She called in at the Camera Connection photo store at 2.30 p.m. after teaching her class and then stopped by a store called Gallery 331. Her conversation with the owner, Greg Wagner, was the last confirmed sighting of Amy. After leaving the photo shop, she drove to the area near Shoshone National Forest to map out the course of a 10K run she was organizing with the local gym. Amy was an avid distance runner with a marathon personal record of 301 and aspired of qualifying for the 2000 Olympic marathon trials. At 4.30 p.m., Amy's husband, Steve Bechtel, returned home and was surprised not to see Amy back at the house. He reported her missing to the police at 10.30 p.m. that night with a strange message. Uh, yeah, hey, I've got a person missing here, I think, and I wondered if you had a spare around any place. The next day, her unlocked white Toyota torso wagon was found around half a mile away from Fry Lake, which was to be the end of the 10K hill run she was planning, where the loop road joins the burnt lunch turnoff. There was no sign of Amy, but her sunglasses, a to-do list, and car keys were left on the passenger seat. 
her wallet was not found. There were no signs of foul play, with no indication of a struggle either inside or near the vehicle. The search began with just Steve and two dozen of his friends, but later that day, there were ATVs, dogs, dirt bikes, and over 100 volunteers looking for any sign of Amy. The next day, horses and helicopters joined in, and by the third day, the search area had been expanded to a 30-mile radius. Investigators at first thought Amy had fallen and been injured in the forest, been run over on the road, or been attacked by a bear or mountain lion. But then the focus of police investigations turned to Steve Bechtel, especially as many murders are committed by spouses. Amy and Steve had been married for just over a year and both worked part-time at Wild Iris, the local climbing shop. Amy also waited tables at the Sweetwater Grill and taught a youth weightlifting class at Wind River Fitness Center. They had recently bought a house in Lander and planned to move in during the coming weeks. After a search of the couple's property, detectives discovered Steve's journals, which contained poetry or song lyrics sometimes, with violent overtones describing violence towards women and, specifically, Amy. A week and a half after Amy vanished, Steve employed lawyers and refused to take a polygraph test, which further raised suspicions for many residents of Lander, as well as the media. Honestly, I don't blame him for that. I don't fully trust polygraph tests, and they're not even admissible in court, so why do police continue to pursue them? Detectives interrogated Steve on August 1st, 1997, falsely claiming to have evidence proving he had murdered his wife. A woman driving through the area from where Amy disappeared claimed to have seen a truck matching Steve Bechtel's in the area with a blonde-haired woman in the passenger seat, but she was unable to positively identify it was him. On August 5th, an FBI agent accused Steve of murdering Amy, but Steve had an alibi. He was with his friend scouting a climbing spot the day Amy had vanished in the mountains, and since it was grizzly country, he took his dog as well as a firearm. Questions remain whether Steve had the opportunity during the day to get to the forest and carry out the crime, despite the distance. In 2004, Steve had Amy declared legally dead and remarried. 25 years later, Amy's case remains open and unsolved. During the initial investigation into Amy's disappearance in 1997, a tip came in from Dale Wayne Eaton's brother, Richard Eaton. He informed the sheriff that his brother may have been involved, but the investigators ignored the information as they were focused on Steve at the time. By not pursuing this lead, they may have allowed the notorious Great Basin serial killer to get away. Richard knew that Dale had been camping in the Burke Glutch area at the time of Amy's disappearance, at an average elevation of 7,860 feet, where she was marking her 10K running route. And coincidentally, this was a favorite elk hunting and trout fishing spot of the Eaton brothers. But after Richard Eaton called police with his suspicions, the detective dismissed the tip, choosing to believe instead the word of Dale Eaton's niece, who said he was visiting her in Colorado on July 24th. A $100,000 reward out for information leading to a resolution of Amy's case meant that investigators were also suspicious of Richard's motives. In 2014, Dale Wayne Eaton's death sentence was struck down by a federal judge, 
Rowling Eaton didn't have appropriate representation during the penalty phase of his trial. In 2015, Natrona County prosecutors filed its intent to seek the death penalty again, but withdrew that motion after mental evaluators found that Eaton was not competent to withstand a capital sentencing hearing, but could proceed with the sentencing hearing that does not include the death penalty. Dale Wayne Eaton was sentenced this past January 2022 to life imprisonment without parole on the count of first-degree premeditated murder, followed by sentences of 40 to 50 years for three counts of felony murder to be served consecutively. He received 20 to 25 years on counts of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, and first-degree sexual assault to be served concurrently. Both Lisa Kimmel's and Amy Robechtel's cases were profiled on Unsolved Mysteries and Nightmare Next Door. Lisa's mother also published a book, The Murder of Lil Miss, about her daughter's life and murder. I will definitely be giving that a read. I typically like true crime stories that have a conclusion, and that was my original intent with this episode. But once this fell into my lap, I couldn't resist it. After all, it's a good thing to bring light to unsolved cases. By bringing attention to these tragic murders, hopefully one day we can offer closure to the victims' families. I hesitate to say this because I don't want to come across as disrespectful, but this episode was very fascinating for me, and now I fear I have fallen down the Great Basin murders rabbit hole. My heart goes out to all of the families involved in the cases I've spoken about today. I cannot imagine the pain of not knowing. Let me know how you feel about today's contents, and if it's received well, I would love to dig up some more cases to bring attention to for future episodes. Thank you for being here, and for all the support as we get into the depths of our lawsuit. You can find out more about that on my social media channels. This has been a whirlwind of a year, but in true Glory Hole fashion, we take a beating and keep on keeping on, laughing at whatever life throws our way. Happy Halloween, Glory Holes. Thanks for listening.